This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 31st, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Many millions of parents are about to discover the broad range of resources available online to continue their children's educations at home. Now that tens of millions of U.S. school-age children are suddenly homeschooled kids. So what are those resources and what should those parents expect from state and local public school authorities to make the transition to homeschooling easier? Kerry McDonald is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and author of the book Unschooled. We spoke last week. Well, I think it's fair to say that um, nearly all, if not all, of the 50 million, roughly 50 million U.S. school-age children are now home. They're not in their schools. And so it's having a tremendous impact on um, education. Of course, we're all homeschooling now by default. Um, but we are seeing some reactions from states and districts and the federal government. So states are, many states are waiving compulsory ad- attendance requirements saying, you know, we don't have to make up the time for the rest of the school year. So that is happening. We're seeing the Federal Department of Education sending waivers to states for annual testing requirements under the edu- Every Student Succeeds Act. So saying that states do not have to comply with an- annual standardized testing mandates. Um, At the individual school and district level, um, many schools are trying to provide supplementary materials, curriculum um, to students and encouraging teachers to offer classes over some web-based platforms like Google Hangouts or Zoom. Um, Some schools and districts are giving young people Chromebooks or other laptops to take home with them. Internet service providers in many places are offering free internet to families that don't already have it. But interestingly, um, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article recently that said some schools and districts are saying that, that this schoolwork won't count. It will be for enrichment purposes only. Um, Seattle, for example, saying this, and Chicago and Illinois, they're saying that Um, teachers can grade work, but it can't be used against a student. And the issue there is that it's really an equity issue that if if some kids do not have reliable internet or do not have access to laptops or resources, that then it's unfair to have the work count. So that, I think, presents an opportunity for parents if they're in a place where this schoolwork Uh, is considered optional and for enrichment purposes only, it could be an opportunity for parents, again, to sort of separate from um, schooling and from curriculum and use this as an opportunity to explore interests with children and to uh, allow children to be more self-directed and not feel tied to that schooling and to that curriculum acknowledging all of the amazing experiences and learning that will happen over these coming weeks as we all uh, cope with this pandemic together. And that's where we're seeing this rise in uh, abundant online learning resources uh, to really help families do this. I have seen some uh, some difficulties that some school districts have had with uh, providing some online uh, lessons for students for fear of liability from either the states or the feds uh, over this issue of of uh, equity. Right. And so I think that's where there many of these districts, especially these larger districts like in Seattle, are saying this will be uh, enrichment only because we can't guarantee that there is equitable access to online resources. 
Um, but what we are seeing, I think, uh, again, for families who have the opportunity to, to disconnect from the schooled curriculum or just need to fill up the time, uh, all of this other time that we now have for their children to explore some other interests. So there are some um, great resources now that have sprouted as a result. And uh, probably one of the, the most popular and well-known of the virtual learning resources is Khan Academy that's been around for quite a while, offering free online um, tools in terms of mathematics, computer science, English language arts, history, and so on. They have uh, an assortment of different YouTube-style videos and, and resources. And they have, since, since coronavirus has hit, come out with even more resources for parents and for teachers, including daily uh, schedules that a parent could use to sort of help to structure their day. So that's a, a nice resource that they're coming out with. Um, for language learning, Duolingo is a free online language learning software where you can learn up to 36, one of 36 foreign languages. Uh, Varsity Tutors is an online tutoring platform where um, individuals can have a, like a live discussion with a tutor and they are also responding to this by offering free access to many of their tutoring programs as well. Uh, outschool.com is similar. They offer live Zoom chats, group chats with subject matter experts on a variety of different topics. And now they've come out and partnered with Zoom, uh, got, gotten some good funding from Zoom to offer free classes to uh, public school students across the country. And then for more college level classes, Coursera uh, has in the past had paid and free classes, um, but now are moving toward all free uh, as a result of the pandemic. So we're just seeing really an abundance of uh, resources from these sort of organizations and uh, and more to come. I mean, there's virtual tours of over 2,500 museums across the world uh, that families can take advantage of. Libraries, if you go to any major library, there are these also these resources as well. I have seen uh, there are a lot of musicians that are broadly touring musicians who are now at home like everyone else and uh, don't want to attract a crowd, uh, as it were. So uh, I've seen a lot of them offering lessons uh, at, at a deeply discounted rate because uh, these guys, they make their money from touring. So uh, if you're a young musician, uh, you should look up some of your favorite uh, live players. I, I'm a, a bluegrass guy, so some of my favorite musicians are offering live lessons online. Right. And I think it's a really great opportunity for, for people that have these skills and these talents to find a way to share them online and potentially even encourage more of these business models to sprout long after the pandemic ends, where we um, you know, could see new businesses and new models emerging. And along those same lines, you also see local organizations that are putting their programming online. So for example, my daughters take martial arts classes, and now those classes have gone online uh, through web platform software. So I think we're also seeing um, lots of adaptations in our communities to this. All right. So with respect to uh, the long-term impact of this, a lot of uh, school individual school districts, if they haven't already made the announcement, are hinting very strongly that uh, schools will be closed for the rest of the academic year. What are the what are the policy implications long term? 
Well, in terms of trends, I think that we will likely see more homeschoolers and a much wider acceptance of virtual learning. I think those things will actually also go hand in hand where you'll have um, families who experimented with homeschooling found that it wasn't that bad, even though, of course, as we've mentioned before, this is not a typical homeschooling experience, but can give a glimpse into what learning without schooling looks like. Uh, and then again, this idea of virtual learning so that parents don't have to feel like they're the teachers, um, but really they're just facilitating their child's education using these abundant uh, online learning tools. And that that could give them a, a, a good peek at what life without school might be like. So I think we'll see some of that. Um, I think really this is a moment where we probably... Um, could be encouraging lawmakers, and I think parents might be pushing for this too, uh, pushing for more education choice mechanisms, especially education savings accounts. So I think there's going to be a real push for school choice as parents see other ways of learning and see all of the resources that are available to them. And education savings accounts allow uh, parents to get access to a portion of their tax dollars to use for a variety of education um, resources. So it's not like a voucher that just goes to tuition at a different school. Education savings accounts um, look at education more broadly, and parents can use the funds for tutors and for classes and for books and for other resources. So I think that we'll see a, a bigger push for that. I hope that we do as well. And along those same lines, I wrote a policy brief for Cato last fall that found that in states that had robust education choice mechanisms, um, several of them also had high rates of homeschoolers. So homeschooling was, was increasing in these states, even when homeschoolers did not benefit personally from any of these education choice mechanisms. And the theory is that when you have an environment of choice, when parents feel like uh, the default school neighborhood school isn't their only option, they will explore other kinds of education uh, uh, options for their kids and may stumble upon homeschooling and see that that is a, is a possibility as well. So I think we'll see as families now disconnect from standard schooling, they may be surprised to discover all of the different options available to them and will push for more uh, education choice policy uh, programs. One of the arguments that I've heard and that I've offered myself for school choice is that uh, to the extent that parents feel like they have options, they can be engaged in their uh, children's educations in a way that they weren't before. That is that uh, because these options exist, they actually begin to weigh those options. And that speaks to uh, your point about uh, homeschoolers, uh, homes, the ranks of homeschoolers increasing in states where even they themselves will not necessarily benefit from educational choice options. We're in a situation right now where parents are uh, forcibly, extremely engaged in their children's educations uh, right now, and uh, presumably a, a large share of them uh, you know, I shudder to think how many that might be would decide, well, either this isn't that hard, uh, with a dedicated parent, um, or, uh, wow, this is harder than I thought. Let's go find out some other options on the, on the internet. Yeah. And I think it will be an interesting education reset. Um, particularly if more of these districts and at the state level, um, departments of education create 
this voluntary compliance with whatever curriculum is being sent home over the coming weeks, because again, it will encourage families to take the pressure off of feeling like they have to replicate school at home and also, again, start to discover and explore these incredible online learning resources. So I think we will see some increased interest in long-term homeschooling that, of course, is much more authentic than the artificial homeschooling we're seeing now. And I think we'll see an uptick in uh, virtual learning resources as well. I I also think it it will change education in ways that we may not yet know. So I think of uh, Terry Moe's book out of Stanford University, The Politics of Institutional Reform, where he talked about uh, Hurricane Katrina and how that disaster completely reshaped um, the New Orleans school district to be a nearly all charter school district. And it really only happened because of the massive scale of destruction uh, that occurred through Hurricane Katrina. And I wonder if we will see a similar education reset in the wake of this pandemic. Carrie McDonald is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and author of the book Unschooled. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>